I'm glad that you are here. I was wondering at the beginning as we were singing songs if, if there were people behind me this morning and then as we began to sing more and more songs about God's grace, I noticed you woke up from your long and lazy Canada Day weekend and decided that it was still good to be in church. Um, and I'm glad you're here. I'm glad I'm here too. I want to share with you a quote from a man named A.W. Tozer, who you might not know. Um, I only know about him because someone passed me a book of his one time, put it in my library and said, this is something you should have, but this is a man of God. And he uh, came to faith later in life and was a pastor and a part of the Christian Missionary Alliance. And he wrote many things that uh, were meaningful and some of his things have been written down and quoted on the internet. And, and as I thought, as we went into the text today, uh, this would be a really good thing for us to be thinking about. So he writes this quote, he says this, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. So if that's true, let me ask you, what do you think about God? Do you think of him as imaginary or do you think of him as being real? Do you think of him as being uncaring or do you think of him as being compassionate? If God is imaginary, then God is not important. You are, and God should serve you. If God is real, then you are, you are, sorry, if God is imaginary, then God is not important. If God is real, then you are not most important, and God is the most important, and you should serve him. If God is fair, but uncaring, then you serve him out of fear because he treats you according to your actions. He is like a cosmic judge, making sure that you only get what you deserve. But if God is fair and also compassionate, you can serve him in response to an offer for relationship. God becomes more like a father who blesses his children even though they don't deserve it. So we have these ideas of God. And, and what you think about God, what comes to your mind when you think about God is the most important thing about you. Well, Scripture declares to us that God is indeed fair, but he's also compassionate, and it's his compassion that we love him for. When Moses asked to meet God, God passed by him proclaiming these words, which are recorded for us in Exodus 34. He says, the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. This is the God we sing about, this is the God we serve. God is compassionate, and this is the basis of Christian theology, and we might know about it, but today we're gonna to look at a parable that reminds us of this kind of thing. For some of us, when we don't see God this way as being compassionate, grace stinks. It re the idea that God is gracious, it kind of reeks in our nostrils. This concept has been put forward by an author named Philip Yancey who wrote a book that was popular called What's So Amazing About Grace? And he writes this idea. If we have the perspective that God is not compassionate, if he's, if he's only fair, if he's only seeking to punish, if he doesn't bless us, if we don't see him primarily as compassionate and loving, grace stinks because it doesn't feel fair at all. See, when grace happens, it elevates the status of the undeserving to make them equal with those who deserve. Grace treats the stranger like a friend, Grace treats the lazy like the diligent. Grace treats the crook like the honest man. Such grace reveals that God's thinking about human value is independent from human activity and merit or contribution. 
So grace like this often, when it happens, takes us by surprise. It catches the person who is most concerned about fairness off guard, and it puts them in a bad mood. What's even harder is when we meet God, we find out that he wants us to treat people with this same kind of grace. This is exactly the scenario that happened in the parable of the prodigal son, where one son treated his father horribly, ran away, spent all his money, and then came back and said, Lord, uh, Father, can I just work maybe in in the fields or just be one of your servants? And the father welcomed it in and, and had a party in his honor. And the older son was there thinking, this is grace and this stinks. I don't understand why this son who has been rebellious to my dad would be treated like this, and there's no way, Dad, that I want to go and join that party. See, all week long as I've been preparing for this, I've been struggling and I've, I've caught it this morning. The problem is when we think God owes us things, we don't like to see him give things away out of grace. It feels bad. It puts us in a bad mood when we see it because our perspective about him is wrong. So perhaps this morning your view on God has left you with the notion that showing grace is scandalous. That somehow when God blesses people who don't deserve it, that there's something wrong there or something unfair. That somehow God is, is treating you unfairly and giving someone what they, what they don't deserve that you've worked so hard to get from him. So if that's the case, I want you to pay attention to the parable that we're going to study today. Um, because Jesus uses this to illustrate the kingdom of God and what God is really like. If you want to turn to Matthew chapter 20. Here we see Jesus telling a parable. We've been following along with Jesus' stories, and he's always using these parables to teach us things. And this parable is only in Matthew. It's not in Luke or or, um, Mark or John. It's just in Matthew. But it comes in response to a question of the disciples. It happens right after the, the time when the disciples were told, uh, were, were, had met um, the rich young ruler who had come up to Jesus and said, what must I do to inherit an eternal life? And Jesus says to him, well, if you really want to have eternal life, what you need to do is go away and sell all your possessions and then come and follow me. And we read in the text, that's in chapter 19, that this man walks away sad because he had many possessions and doesn't follow Jesus. And they have some teaching there that happens after that. They say, well, if, you know, if this guy who did all these good things can't be saved, who can be saved? And Jesus says, it's impossible, but with God it's possible. So then Peter, realizing that he and the disciples have left everything they have when Jesus called them, says, okay, we did it. We, we walked away from everything. We walked away from our careers as fishermen. We've walked away from our families. We've walked away. We have no idea what's going on. We did that really hard thing, Jesus. So what is there going to be for us? What's the reward for us? We did the hard work. What's there going to be for us? And so Jesus begins to tell them as chapter 19 comes to a close, he says, okay, good things are going to happen for you. You're going to help me rule. You're going to be part of the kingdom. You're going to sit on 12 thrones. It's all going to be good like that. You're going to get family back. You're going to get, um, you're going to get houses back. You're going to get your dog back. It sounded like a country song in reverse kind of thing. But, um, you know, it's that kind of thing. But he said it's all going to be good. But then he, then he kind of drops this line on him, on them. He says, but the first will be last and the last will be first. That's the last line of chapter 19. And then we have this parable. So as chapter 20 of Matthew begins, we find Jesus taking a moment to illustrate the meaning of this saying, the first will be last and the last will be first. And this is a parable of amazing grace. So let's read it. It says this, for the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire men to work in his vineyard. He agreed to pay them a denarius 
for the day and sent them into his vineyard. A denarius is just the standard wage for a day. It wasn't special. It was what people expected to get for a day of work. About the third hour, he went out and saw others standing in the marketplace doing nothing. He told them, you also go and work in my vineyard, and I will pay you whatever is right. So they went. He went out again about the sixth hour and the ninth hour and did the same thing. About the eleventh hour, he went out and found still others standing around. He said to them, he asked them, why have you been standing here all day doing nothing? Because no one has hired us, they answered. He said to them, you also go and work in my vineyard. When evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, call the workers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last ones hired and going on to the first. The workers who were hired about the eleventh hour came, and each received a denarius. So when those who came who were hired first, they expected to receive more, but each one of them also received a denarius. When they received it, they began to grumble against the landowner. landowner. These men who were hired last worked only one hour, they said, and you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the work in the heat of the day. But he answered one of them, friend, I am not being unfair to you. Didn't you agree to work for a denarius? Take your pay and go. I want to give to the man who was hired last the same as I gave you. Don't I have the right to do what I want with my own money? Or are you envious because I am generous? So the last will be first and the first will be last. Well, this is the Lord's word. We want to study that today, but before we do, let's ask God to help us as we do that. Father in heaven, I thank you for this moment. Thank you for this service that's uh, being conducted in your name. Thank you for this country in which we, we get to do that in. Father, we want to have the right mind about you. We want the right things to come to our mind when we think about you so that we would live accordingly, that we would respond to who you really are, your compassion and your love and your grace. God, may we see this come through these words today. Lord, help me, your servant, to, to preach this as I ought, and I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I do believe that Jesus told this parable to challenge our thinking about what God is really like so that we could move outside the idea of God being a fair God who, who only gives us what we deserve and doesn't want to give us anything more so that we can learn to be people who are also gracious like he is. So this parable to me conveys three ideas about God's amazing grace that we need to consider today. And as you're listening, you might find that these ideas overlap quite a bit but I'm trying to make them distinct as I can. So the first idea that I believe is conveyed in this story is this one. If you think you are in contract with God for first will be first wages, you are totally missing out on amazing grace. The first workers were the only ones to have an actual agreement with God. He said, they, they went out, and if you think about the day, it's not like our day when it says they went out the first hour. That's about 6 a.m. The working day was about 6 a.m. to 6 p.m. So 6 is the first hour of the day, uh, the, 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 at 9 o'clock, 12, 3 o'clock, and then 5 o'clock would represent the 11th hour. But they went out, they got the contract, they're going to work with, with this vineyard owner for the, for the day. They have the contract. And so the target audience for this parable is anyone who believes themselves as first and deserving, Sometimes we, who have a long history with God, being obedient, doing the hard work, we begin to feel that, in, that we are entitled to what God wants to give away freely. This can happen with anybody who has a history of multi-generational Christianity, but it can also happen to any of us who have been Christians for a long time and think we've been serving well. 
So Jesus is speaking to those who believe that they're in contract with God for blessing. Now, as we go through this, I'm going to say to you what, a, what a, one of my teachers used to say to me, put your thinking cap on. Any teacher ever said that to you? This, is, this concept I spent the most time going through, what is going on here? Why is this happening? Why is he saying this to them? First of all, I'm, I'm struck by the fact that Jesus is telling this parable to his disciples. And the key thing here is his disciples were the ones that he's speaking to about feeling entitled. In the last passage, it seemed like they were the ones going to be rewarded because they were first in. But now he's speaking to them about being entitled. So he's telling this parable to counter any notion in their minds and in ours that God prioritizes those with history over those who are new in the faith. Jesus wants to make sure with this parable that we don't walk away thinking that as God builds his kingdom, what he's really looking forward to is populating with a bunch of people that have been Christians for their whole lives and doing everything right, and that's everybody that's going to be in the kingdom, and anybody new has to be treated like they're new, that they're not entitled to any sort of grace, that there's always going to be a distinction between those who are first and those who are last. So he brings this concept to our minds through this parable, explaining and illustrating what he means by the first will be last and the last will be first. But why would these people, why would anybody like the disciples, why would any of us begin to believe that we had this priority with God? What would cause people like that to believe they had a priority with God? Well, they, there's a couple different ideas that were going on here that are represented in here. First of all, you can write these down if you want. They won't appear on the slides. But um, they had an agreement. In particular, the Israelites had the covenant with Moses. But in general, these workers had an agreement. They spoke to the, work, they spoke to the landowner in the beginning, said, we're going to do this, we're going we're to work for you for the whole day, and at the end of the day, we're going to have a denarius. And so they felt entitled to that. Just like the people in Israel felt, if we do the good things listed in the law, if we follow all the commands of Moses, we will be blessed. Notes from a different sermon. Get those out of the way, else we'll be here way too long. Right? So they did all that and they thought, hey, we, we deserve the blessing. We're doing everything. That's the agreement. We get into that contract idea with God. And, and this is such a subtle thing with us. Sometimes we make that idea, Lord, if I do for you, you must do for me. And we make that the basis of our Christian life and it just happens so subtly. The other reason that they thought they had this priority was that they were chosen early. The Israelites obviously are the chosen people of God, Abraham's descendants. They, they are the people that the promise was made to, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Last time I checked my family tree, those guys aren't my relatives, right? But every Israelite claimed those people as their ancestors, and they were chosen early. This family, above all, Abraham's descendants, were chosen to be God's representative nation, the people among the earth. And that gave them a sort of privilege. They were the ones who had the priests. They were the ones that had the, the prophets. They were the ones that had the law and the writing. It was them that had God go out with them with the, with the ark and help them to be victorious in battle. And so they were chosen early. The Israelites also worked hard. They waited on God for centuries. They fought for the promised land. They built the temple. They served as priests. They suffered discipline under this contract, this agreement. They suffered while other nations got to be blessed and, and had a good time. Right? They, they worked hard. They, they suffered. It says that we suffered the heat of the day, the workers complained. We, we worked all day for you. And then he said also, as they looked around, they realized that the other nations, the other people that weren't chosen, that didn't have the agreement, they worked a lot less. They didn't work at this belief 
life. They didn't work at a life of faith. They didn't work as people that were chosen. They worked a lot less. So there are four ideas. They had the agreement. They were chosen early. They worked harder than everyone else, and everyone else worked a lot less. So they had this idea that at reward time, at time for payment, they should get the denarius, and everybody else should get something less. So it was the Jewish people in Jesus' day that felt entitled to the blessing of God more than any other nation on earth. They were the first, and other nations who rejected God, the people who practiced wickedness, were the last. And this is what entitlement looked like. There was a group of people that felt privileged. They had the pedigree, they had the history, and they wanted to get paid first. So he spoke to this. Now you might be thinking, hey, that's Israel. I'm different than that. That would never be me. Well, as I've been in church for a little while, I've noticed that sometimes we get this privilege thing going on. We get this entitlement thing going on. One of the easiest places is that um, that we can see it is um, many of us will sit in the same seat every Sunday. And you have been sitting in that seat so long that that seat knows your name. Right? It's wood and it's grain. It's now shaped to your body. Right? And so when you walk in, after you've protected that seat, been faithful every Sunday in church, you've come, you've brought your family, you raised your kid right there, they came to Christ right beside me after that wonderful service, that's your pew. And so when someone new comes into the church looking to connect with God, and they happen to sit in the seat that has your grooves and shapes and creases and history in it, what do you do? Excuse me, um, this is awkward. You're sitting in my seat. I've been here for like 15 years, right? That's my gum. That's my pencil marks from when I was a kid, right? You can see that's where I left my purse. I leave it there all the time because I don't want to forget it. You know, I got, it's, we own those things. We feel entitled to that seat. That's an easy one, right? It gets worse. I don't want to preach this sermon. <laughs> I just want to go and be loved. Um, Um, I serve, people start to feel this way when they've served for a long time. I've served for how many years? 20 years, 30, 30 years? I've served this church for 78 years, right? I've been faithful, I've been a member of the board. My dad was a member of the board. My daddy's daddy was a member of the board. Check the sign, our family are the charter family of the church. We've been serving here. And if anybody's going to get some type of reward for being served for 20 years or something like that, these new kids who only serve for like 15 minutes, right? What about me? Shouldn't I get noticed first? Shouldn't, doesn't my work matter to God? Doesn't my work matter to the church? Shouldn't they recognize me? Right? And it gets worse. Going on to the idea that we built this church is saying, you know, those new leaders at the church, those guys that think they walk on the stage, come here for nine years and they think they can tell us how to run these places, they should consult with people like me who have been here clearly longer than they have before they make any decisions. I'm entitled to direct this church beyond any pastor, any leader, any young upstart leader that shows up here. You think this doesn't happen, but I I told Brett a story to remind him that this happens in church. There's a whiteboard upstairs in the youth room, and some um, dearly people, I don't know who they are, so if you're here, I love you. It happened very early in in my time here, but I was treated to the privilege of having someone put a whiteboard up for me, and I thought, this is great. I wanted to carry it because they were a little bit older. I thought I should at least carry it upstairs. I said, no, we'll carry it. Just tell us where you want to put it, Pastor Duane. So we went upstairs and I, I said, okay, we want to put it on this wall. And then we got into negotiating about how high it should be. 
And I suggested that it should be about this high. And this older saint said to me, you know what, we're going to put it down here because the next guy is going to be shorter than you. It's perfect height for Brett. But there was entitlement, right? He just took it away. He said, you're new. What do you know about where a whiteboard should be placed? Right? This happens. It's not just Israel. These quotes, these ideas that we keep in our mind, they portray a sense of entitlement. The first should be first. The first should be treated like they're first. But here's the problem. All such statements, all such thinking omits the fact that we are only in the position we are because of God's gracious choice. And prior to his choice, we were like all these other workers in the field, sitting around, doing nothing, waiting to be hired. So how do we counter? How do we begin to counter this sense of entitlement? Because it's so subversive. None of you here would put up your hand if I said, okay, everybody testify. Are you you entitled this morning? No one would throw up their hand. You're like, I don't think he's talking about me. Maybe the guy over there, right? I saw him protecting his pew this morning. But none of us would think that. I spent the whole week thinking, this has got to be for someone else. I'm not even sure I know people like this. And then over the last couple weeks, over the last couple nights, I said, no, Lord, this is for me too. I do feel entitled. I want my work to matter, and I want to be recognized before other people do. So how do we counter this sense of first will be first entitlement if we sense it in ourselves? Well, the first step has to do with controlling our response to grace when we see God offering it to someone else. And we're going to get to that in a second. But before we leave this concept, let's make sure we know that first shall be first thinkers are missing out on grace. You're missing out on something if you're thinking all the time in church about what you're entitled to. See, amazing grace is action by God to bless people when they don't deserve it, period. That's what's weird for us. Amazing grace is action by God to bless people when they don't deserve it. Period. Each one of us has received amazing grace. If we live as though we deserve everything good God has given us, we do not see his grace. And if we don't see his grace, we can never act like God. So let's go on to figure out how God wants us to counter this. So the second idea of this passage that I see is uh, don't complain when you see grace in action. We get this. In verses 11 to 13, we get the response of the men who were paid last, who saw the grace. When they received it, they began to grumble against the landowner. These men who were hired last worked only one hour, they said, and you have made them equal to us, who have borne the burden of the work in the heat of the day. The landowner replies, friend, I'm not being unfair to you. Didn't you agree to work for a denarius? He basically says, don't complain. Don't complain when you see the landowner acting graciously towards people. But grace stinks. Why? Grace is an affront to those who want to distinguish themselves by effort. Give me what is owed because my work is worth it. Grace seems at first to devalue their work and they feel ripped off. God does recognize the value of your work, but this is not grace. I think if I asked you guys to put up your hand and say, have you ever felt ripped off? Have you ever felt that your work was underappreciated? Many more of you would be willing to put up your hand. We've been there. In this part of the passage, it's really easy for us, I think, if we let ourselves go there, to identify with these men 
with these workers who spent 12 hours, 12 hours in a vineyard doing vineyard work, cutting, pruning, pulling, lifting, moving rocks, doing all this stuff, watching throughout the day as different men, different shifts of workers came in. They started at 6 a.m. The next group came in at 9, and they did nine hours of work. The next group came in at 12. The next group came in at 3. The last group came in at 5, one hour before closing time, one hour before quitting time. And then they all got paid, and they watched the, the last group get paid first. And they see them getting the denarius, a full day's pay for one hour of work. Let me ask you, on Monday, if you go to work and at the end your boss decides to pay you for the full day, you're happy. But if he hires someone at 4 p.m. and pays them first and then opens the church and says, it's the same as what I'm giving you, how many of you would feel ripped off? Please don't leave me hanging. Right? I, we need to feel this. Jesus told this story, and he told it so plainly so that we would all understand that we would fit, feel just like these 12-hour-day hard workers, feeling ripped off. Going like, the only surprising thing here is that these people that didn't deserve the money got paid for a full day. And there's a feeling that goes around with that, and it's this, like, this, this is not Right? This is unfair. i got to talk to my boss about this. Something's wrong. You either got to give us more money or give them less, but you, ha- you can't make us equal to that kind of person. There's something wrong with the math, right? 12 hours for a denarius. Nine hours of work, and God paid them for three hours of grace. Six hours of work and six hours of grace. Three hours of work and nine hours of grace. One hour of work and 11 hours of grace. That's an amazing boss to work for. Jesus gave us this detail that the early workers complained when they saw that the late workers got the same thing they received. And I don't think I'd be any different. I'm not sure you'd be any different either. We would see this as unfair because it just doesn't feel right. It brings up the same kind of emotion that I had last week when I got to the end of the 407, wanted to drive on the new extension and there was a traffic jam. And I thought, okay, if there's an accident, I'll be okay, but if this is just people trying to cram in at the last second, I'm not gonna be happy. Pastor Kelvin was with me. He knows I kept my testimony intact. But we were coming to the end of this thing, and I thought, okay, you know, it's just all the people on the 407, they're trying to get off the 407 after trying to get home and all that stuff, so they're just like me. But when I got there, I realized it wasn't them, it was people that were just trying to get onto the extension for free, and they were slowing up the traffic. And I'm watching them get ahead of me. Yeah. <laughs> There's some drivers in the room, right? And, and you watch them get ahead of you, and, and even if you don't say anything, even if you say, you know, you know, like, ah, it's taken me 25 minutes to get to this spot, and you're just coming off the amp- off, and there you go. It just doesn't feel right. There's that feeling. Or it's Costco. <laughs> I'm talking about real life now, right? I don't even go because the lines are so long, and I hate standing in line. Because you stand there, and you work to hold your spot.
And then some teller comes up, oh, it's busy, let's open up a new line. And then that guy shopping for like five seconds, oops, and he goes through. <laughs> Come on, <laughs> right? This is the feeling I've had all week studying this text. I'm like, right? You've made them equal to us. Why are you paying them first? Why are you doing this to them? Don't you see what I've been doing? I've put in the long time. I've put in the hard effort, right? And Jesus says, shut up. (laughs) Don't complain. I'm not treating you unfairly. I've given you exactly what you worked for. So it's not that I'm not fair. I am fair. But when we think of God as fair, we think of God being fair to us. That's the limit of it. We want God to be fair to us. Recognize my pay, and that's good. I don't care if you don't pay him or her or anything like that. Just make sure I get my money, and I'd be good. I don't think those guys would have complained at all if, 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 if the landowner decided, hey, you came and worked for me for an hour. I'm not giving you anything. And that's fine. I don't care, right? They were just left. But they cared because it seemed unfair. It did seem that their work was undervalued. So God, we learn from this, he does not want us to complain about the compassion he offers to others who don't work as hard as we do or suffer like we have. Why am I saying this is a compassionate act? Why is the landowner trying to help us understand that this is not about him being unfair? This is about compassion. Well, these men, they would go to these these marketplaces and stand around trying to earn a living so they could go home at the end of the day and have this denarius, which is just enough to buy enough food and enough whatever supplies you needed to get through the night and start over again, start over a day. So this landowner decides to do this amazing, gracious act to bring in people who have stood around doing nothing all day and say, you know, you're going to work for me an hour, and at the end of the day, out of who I am as a person, I'm going to bless you and meet your need. I'm going to give you what you need. I know you don't deserve it, but this is the kind of person I am. And so the landowner explains to the workers, don't complain when you see me acting graciously. I have treated you fairly, but... I want to treat these people generously. That is so hard for us. That is so hard for us. But if we're going to get past it, we have to get our minds right. If we're going to get to the spot where we can rejoice over the fact that someone else's needs are met, we're going to have to get our minds right. We're going to have to see that God doesn't treat us poorly when he blesses someone else. We have to get past that idea that if, if you see someone in the church advancing, it doesn't necessarily mean that God is holding you back. If someone gets to have your seat, that's okay. There's another one right behind it, right? It's not that God doesn't want you in church. He just wants more people in church. He just wants to show that he's generous. He meets needs. So our mindset has to go from the idea that we're entitled to that God generously meets our needs. And that each one of us, despite our history or the length of service we've had, we all begin in a relationship where God needs to meet our needs. And the great thing that this, song, this uh, parable reveals is that God has enough to meet everyone's needs. They're so busy complaining that one thing I noticed that maybe you haven't noticed yet is that as God's, as, sorry, God is the landowner in my thing, if you haven't caught that idea yet. But the landowner is going around paying people fat days worth of paycheck. Here's a denarius for you, and there's 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 a denarius for you, and everybody gets a full day's wage. And he's hired a ton of workers. 
right? And so some are complaining, others are like, wow, we got one too. But here's the thing, this landowner is rich. He has enough, so he's not worried. He pays the people in the beginning, he pays the people at the end, and everybody gets taken care of. And that's the attitude I think that can begin to help us, is that God is going to take care of us too, even if we've been serving for a long time. So we're not supposed to complain, that's the second idea. The third idea is this one. Grace is still available to people at the 11th hour. This is an amen part, right? The other part was a little bit harder because we're like, oh, okay, I don't want to talk about entitlement. I don't want to be that person who's, who's grumbling before God. But there's this other message in here that's the gospel part. That's the part that excites us, the part that we already have been singing about this morning, and that, it's that grace was available for those people who were standing around doing nothing, qualified for nothing, and this landowner who cared about giving them a denarius, who cared about blessing them out of his rich store of blessings, who had enough to take care of those who had been working for such a long time and was still concerned about those who were waiting for such a long time to come out at the 11th hour, one hour before it was too late to pay anyone, and find them and say, come and work in my vineyard, come into a relationship with me, and I will take care of your needs. The grace is still available to people at the 11th hour, and that's an amen moment, right? Amen. God is constantly looking for people to join his work and experience his gracious nature. He keeps going out to look for people to the end of the day. There's a prophetic element to this story. At this moment in time, this is Jesus teaching his disciples. They're new in the game. He hasn't gone to the cross yet. Pentecost hasn't happened yet. Nobody understands that God wants to shift his focus from the nation of Israel to bless the other nations. But Jesus understands that. And so as he goes out past the chosen people, and he goes out to bring some more people in, and then he goes out to bring more and more people in, and he goes out to bring more and more people in, and to the point that it's almost unlikely that the last group would even be considered hired, Jesus is using this parable to say, this is the plan. I'm going to be bringing more people in, and I want you to get on board with that. And we rejoice over that. At the end of the day, he doesn't show favoritism to the first people. He shows that he wants to be generous to all people. God wants to bless us all in the same way. Do you understand that? Can you, can you look across a room like this and realize how different we are and say, God, it's okay with me if you want to bless someone in the balcony the same way you want to bless me. It's okay if you want to bless that person who I know hasn't been living for you for their whole life the same way you've wanted to bless me and when we've been living for you for our entire lives. He wants to bless everyone in the world the same way he chose to bless the nation of Israel. He wants people like us, people who are the Gentiles. We're a Gentile church, not the Jewish church. We are people that came in. We're not the first people. He wants people who had no claim to God's full blessing to receive the full experience of being in relationship with him. This is the gospel. This is the amazing thing that Jesus was just beginning to open the door on. He says, I'm going to be saving people that you don't even expect me to save. I'm gonna be meeting the needs of people that you don't even expect me to meet the needs for. So if we want to get in on that, we have to realize that there are always people around us, people that we've written off, people that we think it's too late for them that God's still looking for. And he wants us to have that kind of generosity. The denarius in this story is like the Spirit of God. The Holy Spirit that God poured out into the world and that each one of us who has believed, who has said, Jesus Christ, I know I'm a sinner. I know I need to follow you. 
I need to trust you. I want to do your work. He says, I give to that person my Holy Spirit. Not a lesser portion, not a greater portion, the same portion. So that every believer in here has the same thing. And they were all made equal. Doesn't matter if someone's done a lot more work in the church than you have. Doesn't even matter if you've done a terrible job of serving him up to this point. If today was the day that you trusted in the Lord, you would receive that Holy Spirit in the same way that the holiest person in this room has it. That's an amazing thing that we're beginning to pick up on in this, in this parable. So it restates the teaching at the end. The last will be first and the first will be last. And what he's hinting at is saying that, yes, Israel, I see you and I'm going to deal with you and I'm going to give you the benefit of serving me for all these years. But that's coming at the end. First, I'm going to get the Gentiles and bring them into my kingdom because I'm going to teach you that I'm like this landowner and I'm not satisfied with the first group. I'm going to bring in as many as I can and bless them out of my rich generosity. Now, I find that amazing. I find that to be remarkable. I find it to be really humbling that God would want to do that. I don't know how you, how you feel about that, but I've been wrestling with that all week, and I've been thinking, so Lord, how, do we, how does that fall for us as a congregation today? Well, I've already talked to you about the one aspect, two aspects, really, that first of all, we don't get to be entitled. We don't get to act like we deserve blessing more than other people. We don't get to complain when we see other people being blessed. We don't want that happening. If you see someone coming in here and they have a great start with the Lord and everything goes well and you're thinking, how come I'm not getting blessing, right? Don't, don't be complaining about that. Focus on the grace. But it's this last aspect that I hope no one would miss today if they need it. That there could be someone here and for you, you're living at that 5 p.m. You're living at that, that 11th hour and you're thinking, God would never come and offer me anything at this point in my life. And a parable like this says, what can you expect from God? You can expect that he will pay you the same way as the pers first person on the job. So if you're someone in this room that would say, uh-uh, I don't qualify for grace like that, you're wrong. There's nothing stopping you now to come and say, Lord, if I work for you, if I do what you want, you will, you will reward me. You will, you will make up the difference. Even if I only bring one step, you can do 11. Even if, even if I think that you, you've poured out all the blessing on all these people and there's nothing left for me, it turns out that you have so much for me. So I want to speak to that one person this morning, or two or three, who might be here thinking, I've been coming, but I've just thought that he would never ask me. God is asking you today. God is asking you. You think it's the 11th hour. You think it's too late. You think there's too much difference between you and the first people, but there's not. And the reason is not because you don't qualify. It's because Christ died for you, and he did that as an act of grace. So today, the right response to this parable is that you would agree to work for God, that you would turn your life over and say, I come as an 11th hour person there's so many salvations that happen like that. The man on the cross that died beside Jesus, an 11th hour, turn around. There's a, there's a book called Philemon. And in that book, it talks about a slave who ran away, probably stole something. It's in the Bible, one, one little book. He ran away, probably stole something, ran away and, and got hooked up with the apostle Paul, got saved. And then Paul is fighting for him to say, treat this guy like a brother. 
He's dear to me. He talks about him the same way he talks about Timothy. And if you know anything about Paul and Timothy, Paul loved Timothy. He also loved Onesimus. He was an 11th hour of salvation. Rahab, the prostitute, just when Joshua was going to lead the troops against Jericho in that crazy plan battle, he saved this prostitute at the 11th hour because she trusted him. She'd done nothing. She came from an enemy nation, but she put her trust in God and he saved her and gave her the same life and the same experience and benefit that he gave to the Israelites. God is the king of 11th hour salvations. Some of you guys have friends and, and loved ones that you're praying for and you're thinking it's probably too late. It's not too late. If they're alive, it's not too late. Continue to pray for them. That's one place. So if that's you this morning, come to Jesus. The other spot that I was thinking about was um, when we're married. And I know this is a bit of a jump, but it's the one place where I think as spouses we start to feel entitled because sometimes we live in a marriage where we feel like we put in a full day of hard work of marriage, of being a spouse. We, we wake up early and we go to bed late and we think of every hour saying, I've put all the hard work to love and pour it out there. And you look around and you realize that the person you're married to is not responding the same way. And it's a test and you know it and I know it and we, we understand that. And we get to the point as a church where we can write those kind of relationships off. And maybe marriage is a setting, maybe there's other things where you're bound to a person and you're pouring out the right kind of stuff and that person is not working in the back the same way. And you get to a point where you feel, you know what, God, if you're fair, but you don't care. So I have to keep being good, but you don't have to do anything in response to me. And therefore, I don't have to, do, I don't have to be gracious to that person that I'm, that I'm with. I think... This parable points us in a very different direction than that. Because God valued these men not for their work, but for who they were. And the fact that they, need, they needed something and he wanted to supply it. And as I was thinking about how could I encourage someone who's pouring out grace day after day after day after day, I want to say this. God's grace is sufficient for you and it will never run out on you. And you could get up every day and put a full day in in that relationship because God wants that person even to come back at the 11th hour. So I want to encourage you in those two ways to continue to pray for people that you're waiting to see God save. And let's pray for those of us that are trapped or feel stuck in relationships where, we, where we're putting out that full day of work, hard work of loving someone and not feeling like we're getting the reward back. And let's remind them as often as we can that God's grace is sufficient for you. It'll never run out. He's going to continue to fill you up. In a moment, we're going to sing a song that puts us all in the same place, that reminds us just to praise God for the very breath in our lungs, that we wouldn't even be here unless it was an amazing act of grace to save us, and just to kind of put us all in that same spot, that there are no, there are no firsts and there are no lasts. There are just people that have been saved, people filled up with the Spirit, and anybody today could be that person. So we're going to sing that song, and I want you to, to praise God out of a sense of that relationship where you've received grace. Let me pray as the band comes. Father in heaven, I thank you for this morning. Uh, Lord, I thank you for these parables, these stories that, that 
touch our hearts, Lord, and, and sometimes they just encourage us so much, and sometimes they trouble us, Father. This is a troubling story because it talks about your grace, which is amazing to us, that you would pour it out on people that don't deserve it. Lord, you're leading us way beyond what we're comfortable with, but God, help us to go there with you. Father, help us to get there by remembering that you've poured out your grace on us, that you have given to us what we need for salvation, and that you won't deny that from anyone. God, we pray that you'd make us amazing grace kind of people. Amen. When we get the right perspective on who God is, that he's compassionate and loving and fair at the same time, we can switch from the idea that grace is scandalous or that grace kind of stinks when we have to do it or when we see people being blessed, and we can start to think about it the way we've been singing about it, that grace is beautiful and that each one of us has been touched by it every day and it's something as simple as the breath that we breathe, right? We are entitled to nothing, but we've been given so much. And every one of us in here, whether we've been serving God for a long time or a little time, we understand that our God is rich and generous and gracious enough to take care of our needs every day. So we have no reason to complain. And further, we have every reason to encourage each other as they put out the hard days of gracious living and where it's unreturned, to say there's enough for you. And we should never stop praying for those people here today or in our lives who need grace to come in at the 11th hour to make their lives like ours. Father, I thank you for your amazing grace. I thank you for what it's meant to me. I thank you for your word that humbles me, that reminds me, Lord, I... I don't deserve anything extra just because I've been working long. Father, you just bless me because that's who you are. And Father, I pray for people in my life that don't know you, that you'd bless them and that you would delight in serving them first, even beyond me, that they would be given a full measure of the Holy Spirit and be brought into salvation. I pray for my brothers and sisters who are in relationships where they're putting out the hard work where it doesn't feel like grace is great, but today maybe it begins to feel that grace could be beautiful. Lord, help them. Help them to get over the idea that you have treated them poorly. Help them to realize that you have made them an agent of your kingdom and that you're enabling them by the breath in their lungs to bless someone that you care about with a great and amazing grace. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.